This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Thursday, October 27th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Think about some of the great names of malware over the years. Okay names, My Doom, sure. The I Love You Worm, you zigged, I thought you would zag. Stuxnet, what the hell's a Stuxnet? Wanna cry? I guess you did if you were taken. And then Klez, Klez was a big malware worm named Klez. Sounds like the nickname of some guy in the Manchester, England electronica scene. His real name is something boring like David McCallaghan or Matt Clifford. He always went by Klez. Well, I give you Mark Sokolovsky. No, that's not a good name, but listen to this. 26, Ukrainian national, has been indicted by federal, U.S. federal authorities for his role in an international cybercrime operation which has infected millions of computers around the world with malware. The name of the malware? Raccoon Info Stealer. Yeah, yeah, it is. I do not need any convincing about the prefix. Is that Bwoneware? No, no. Is that Euphoraware? It is not. It is malware. This ain't no I love you. It's Raccoon Info Stealer. It is very bad. It is named after nature's bandit, the raccoon. The indictment of Sokolovsky has this note. The FBI has created a website where anyone can input their email address to determine whether it is contained within the U.S. government's repository of raccoon info stealer stolen data. The website is raccoon.ic3.gov. So a weird, bizarre URL that I'm going to click when you go there. It says, give me your email address. So I did, and it stole my info. No, it didn't stole my info, but it could have. This is an indictment about a guy who steals your data. You go to a strange website, ask you to enter an email address. It should be a, you're kind of an idiot after reading all this and still giving us your email address, aren't you? Why don't they do not malware, not euphoraware, just tisk tiskware, right? It should give you a little, not a virus, but a reminder. Don't do that again. There are two attachments to the indictment. One is a photo of, well, it's like a 16-year-old. Sokolovsky's 26. He looks a lot younger. Posing with stacks of, I think it's $100 bills. Sloppy. Hacker. Encrypt thyself. But second is an email, an example of how this worked. It was sent, oh, so insidious, sent April 2019. Headline, what is COVID-19? Now, remember the date, 13,000 people worldwide have COVID-19. Click to research your symptoms. And then when you do, congratulations, you now have Raccoon Info Stealer. If convicted of wire fraud and money laundering, Sokolovsky faces up to 20 years in prison, which, with an estimated 2 million victims worldwide, works out to a little more than five minutes per victim. On the show today, would-be Fetterman voters, how betrayed should they feel? But first... This is as important a story as I've read in the last six months, and it's not like it got zero coverage. I did see it on the cover of the New York Times a couple times. They did follow-ups. It's just that it didn't much change the conversation or the perception of the problem. If I said to you, childhood poverty, things are getting a lot better, would you know that that's true? Would you be surprised? Would you rebut it? 
That's what's going on. That's what's been documented. It is a significant shrinking of child poverty. It is a triumph, but it's also a frustration in that there's little awareness of the progress that we've made. Up next, I shall talk about the facts and implications of all this with the reporter of this story, the New York Times, Jason DePaul. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. It was one of the most important and surprising stories that I had read in the last, I don't know, six months. In the New York Times, they collaborated with a nonpartisan research group called Child Trends and determined that childhood poverty in the United States had shrunk by about 60% over the last 30 or so years. The Times assigned its great reporter, Jason DeParle, to cover these stories, and he did what he does, what he's always done since I began reading him during the days of the Clinton era and work fair. He chronicled the real people behind the statistics, but I had many more questions about the story and about the trend. So Jason DeParle, reporter for the New York Times, two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, joins me now. Jason, welcome to The Gist. Hi, Mike. So tell me about the genesis of the Times and this group looking into the question, how much has child poverty really declined? You know, Mike, if you're a poverty reporter for the New York Times, you spend a lot of your time writing about bad news. I think it's important when you see it to write about good news as well. You don't want to leave your readers with the impression that things are always getting worse. Um, in the official data, there had been some hints that child poverty was getting better. Um, we got access to improved data um, that took into account the full effect of government aid um, that the official poverty measure doesn't provide. And when you look at it through that lens, it's, it's kind of like putting on a new pair of glasses. You see that things really have gotten better for low-income children over the past generation. Now, I know with a lot of measures of uh, poverty or wage growth, there are different camps and often two camps. Um, and I know I have read that with measuring not just childhood poverty, but all poverty, economists kind of say, well, here's one that takes into account the amount of uh, government supplements. We should use that. And other economists say, no, that's not the best way to measure it. So I'm sure I know that you were aware of this debate. Tell me what bringing in your own outside firm does to really clarify the debate of what we should be measuring and what's really the most accurate way to measure how people live. Well, the Census Bureau publishes a measure called the Official Poverty Measure, which leaves out all this government aid. It leaves out tax credits that families get at the end of the year. It leaves out food stamps, um, now called SNAP. It leaves out public house, uh, housing. So the government spends 
hundreds of billions a year trying to make life better for low-income families, but yet when it counts poverty, it leaves that out. So starting in 2009, it began publishing something called the Supplemental Poverty Measure, which does take that aid into account. Um, But it took researchers at Columbia uh, University to take that measure and take it backward in time. They took it all the way to the 1960s. And we went back, um, uh, the researchers at Child Trends um, uh, went back into that data set developed by Columbia University and was able to pull out the story of declining child poverty rates by lots of different subgroups, by race, by ethnicity, um, by uh, nativity, whether the children were, parents were born in the United States, how immigrants were um, faring differently from native born children. You could just get a much more detailed, textured sense of how life had changed for low-income children. And when you just looked at the supplemental rates since 2009, was there an inkling that actually uh, uh, the poverty rate isn't nearly as bad as we thought? Uh, I'm just thinking out loud here, but you know, 2009 was when the effects of the Great Recession were really being felt. Maybe gains that had occurred up to 2009 wouldn't have been um, captured in the new statistics. And furthermore, you know, one would think that if we're looking at supplemental levels, the poverty rate is always going to look uh, a little better. Maybe it wasn't shockingly better just looking at the statistics before you started really doing the deep dive. I think this data was not a great revelation. I think um, really anybody who looked at the Columbia University data could have seen that child poverty was coming down. Um, it, it wasn't that we discovered something that no one else had known. I think we just elevated it and gave it more attention than people had been giving it. More, more attention, um, you know, it hadn't been getting the attention it had warranted. Mm-hmm. One of my colleagues says there's a, a bad news bias in media that we tend to write about things only when they're getting worse. And um, you know, this was a chance to write about some a problem that certainly hasn't been solved, but has gotten better. Yeah. So how much better? Well, as you said, uh, child poverty is down um, 60% or so over the past generation. Um, it's down among uh, every racial and ethnic group at about the same rate. It's down in every state. Uh, we went and looked at families in West Virginia where child poverty has fallen by 75%. Um, yeah, a lot better. There's still 8 million children in America who are poor, right? There shouldn't be any. So I don't want to suggest that the problem's been solved. But yeah, we spend a lot of money trying to make um, life a little bit less harsh and cruel for low-income families, and it has an effect. Right. So those are statistics. Those are important statistics. But your job is to flesh out the statistics through people. So what did you find? How might the life of a person above the poverty, a kid above the poverty line now be different from one in the um, late 80s, early 90s? I'll tell you one thing that did surprise me. It's the amount of government aid that low-income families get, even when they're working, or sometimes because they're working. So you tend to think of a a working family as a family that doesn't need or doesn't get that much aid, but the average family that's lifted from below the poverty line to above the poverty line gets almost half their income from the government. So I wrote about a family called um, the Jackson family, Cecilia and Jaron Jackson. She works uh, as a counselor in a Head Start center, he stays home mostly with the kids and also goes to school online. Um, she makes about $20,000 a year, and she gets that much annually in food stamps, in tax credits, uh, in school meals. You know, she 
half of her family income comes from government support, even as she's a full-time worker. Yeah. And I read that story and you fleshed it out well. And one thing struck me, which is that she is making, I think it was a little under $12 an hour working at Head Start, and it's only a 10-month-a-year gig. Now, if she was working in a state, and West Virginia is one of the last states who will ever pass a $15 minimum wage law, but let's say she was either working in a state with that law or just getting paid $15 an hour, then her that amount, the commensurate amount of income would show up in the official poverty statistics. And she might, she would at least show up, the family would show up as less poor. So think about it, or I ask my listeners to think about it. Under one circumstance, this woman is making under $12 an hour, but government subsidies subsidize her. So it becomes something like 20 something dollars an hour worth worth of aid and income. In another circumstance, maybe if she was just making that income, we wouldn't report the subsidies, but she'd seem less poor, which is more accurate. And also, which is the better path for the government to take? I don't actually know the answer. I know what uh, politicians of different ideologies would say is the answer. But to me, it all seems pretty much the same. What are the arguments for you know ma- wages that get you above poverty versus wages plus government to get you above poverty, Jason? You're absolutely right. You could look at a situation like hers and say, gee, look at how much the government's doing for this woman. You know, Half of her income's coming from government aid. She should do more for herself. Or you could look at that situation and say, oh my gosh, you have a full-time worker who's getting paid wages that are so low, she needs that much government help. Um, she worked in a Head Start Center, which is an anti-poverty program, and the wages left her in poverty. Um, I interviewed other families at that same Head Start fam- uh, Center. They were all in making the, the same amount of money doing, uh, a lot of them were like CNAs, uh, home health care workers. You know, um, One woman had been on the job for 13 years. She was still making $12 an hour. So um, it, the, the, uh, that level of government aid is a function of low wages. Right. And so I guess to flesh out my, just my thinking on this, is it a failure of the society or the government to have a situation where we pay people so little that we have to supplement? Would it therefore then be a triumph of government if we paid people enough that we didn't have to do that? It's a really easy, it's it's a little clear in terms of this situation because in either way, it's the government paying. She works for a government agency. What's the real difference if the government, they don't even have to pass a law to mandate private employers paying $20 an hour. The government could just pay those Head Start workers 20 something an hour and then not have to pay government subsidies. Why? I wonder why would that be better? What would economists say? Is there a reason why one is better there, than the yeah, other? There, there is an argument in the academic economic literature that um, argues that um, some of these tax credits, which are really wage subsidies for low-wage workers, is letting large employers, Walmart, Target, those kinds of places off the hook because um, it's paying wages that those companies should make. And you'll hear that argument sometimes as a kind of critique against the tax credits. Um, there may be something to it theoretically, but in real life, you know, millions of people rely on those programs to pay the rent and put food on the table too. 
I think we have to talk about how accurate is the poverty line and how useful of it, even if we decide, okay, that really is the poverty line. Above it, you could just get by. Below it, you struggle to get by. You know, how useful a concept is it? That's how, because what I'm saying is that's how we're measuring progress. What if the tool of measurement is just wildly inaccurate? I think it's an important tool. It's by no means the only tool. Um, Someone used the analogy to me that um, just as when you go to the doctor, you want to know your um, blood pressure and your cholesterol level, you know, there's multiple ways of assessing your health. So uh, the poverty is kind of an all or nothing measure. If you're, as you just said, a dollar above it, you're not poor. If you're a dollar below it, you are poor. Now, obviously that, you know, in real life, you don't make a night and day difference like that. So um, it's always going to be set at an artificial level, whatever, you know, my idea of what's poor, your idea of what's poor, the government's idea of what's poor is always going to vary. Um, yeah, on average for a family of four in a place with a typical cost of living is about $29,000 a year. Um, so if you reduce the share of people living below that by 60%, I think you can say you've made progress. Um, but I don't think you would say that it's the last word on their economic security. But we have been making progress. I mean, that is the takeaway of your report through statistics, through real examples, through the portraits. We've been making a lot more progress than I think certainly the public thinks, government officials think, and maybe even the experts think. Is that right? You know, I wondered if the people I would meet in West Virginia, a place that you think of as almost uh, you know, epitomizing childhood poverty, um, whether they would feel the decline that statistics show. You know, was this just a, a, a phenomenon that existed on paper, or would they say over the course of a generation they've th- seen things getting better? Um, initially, I thought we might end up writing a story that said, whatever the statistics say, people on the ground don't feel that. I, I didn't find that, actually. I found the opposite, that people said, Oh, yeah, my life's still kind of hard, but geez, it's better than when I was a kid. So um, not Cecilia, but another woman who's got a kid at her Head Start Center talked about how you know, often she'd had child welfare officials uh, coming to the trailer where she had grown up and she was so poor. Now she has a Habitat for Humanity home. And you know, ye- most of your listeners would probably think of her as low income, but she sees herself as um, uh, an example of economic mobility, moving up a notch. Um, There was more of that than I expected to hear. So it is felt. So if we improve things by 60%, quite significant, it is actually felt by the populations who are affected. It's just that is not registered among the rest of us, I think, for reasons ideological, maybe reasons of how we get our information, the media with its bad news bias, let's say. But how do you explain it? That Because if I ask most people, how are we doing on the war on poverty? That old cynical is, uh, we fought the war on poverty and poverty won would probably be the most prominent response. I What I'm saying is, I don't think even informed people who hadn't read your story would say, actually, we're making quite a bit of progress. That's the truth. The people who it's helped know it's the truth, but almost no one else does. Uh, Mike, you mentioned the Reagan quip, we fought a war on poverty and poverty won. I think that's had um, been deeply ingrained in our society and um, uh, has framed the poverty debate in a really negative way over the past generation. There's an ex- expectation that government efforts will fail. Um, that was part of the motivation for doing this project was to try to show that what we're doing isn't futile and it hasn't failed. 
I don't want to overstate things. Um, you know, 8 million children are still in poverty, and a lot of people who are technically not in poverty still suffer economic hardship. You know, those are important, important caveats. But I think it's also important to say, hey, it's the situation's not futile. We can make progress. We have made progress. And all this money we put into these programs helps these people. What your story, what these statistics, what the uh, fleshed out portraits show is that progress is happening and it may be not earth shaking, although to some people it probably is. But there is there is a steady amount of progress. And yet, especially uh, if you look specifically at this, most people do not recognize there is progress. Most people are pretty bummed out by the lack of progress. And I think it has a caustic effect on all of us as people. I wonder if you've thought about it, if you've thought about big reasons for it, if you just maybe... Um, just assign it to, well, we in the news have more of a bad news bias, and that's a, a, that's a consequence. Oh, I think about it all the time, Mike. Look, when I started the poverty beat at the New York Times, um, the reigning ideology was we fought a war on poverty, and poverty won. It was the sense that the government was powerless to do anything for low-income Americans. And I think you know, the central reason I wanted to tell this story um, was to show that that hasn't been the case. That in, over the past 25 years, we have made progress. When I say we, I mean government aid has made progress, has, has contributed to this poverty reduction. We're not powerless to do something about poverty. It's not futile. I know your beats are poverty and immigration, but I think of a couple other areas that are very much like the question of child poverty in that there are a couple different statistics you can look at one set doesn't seem to capture the full picture, and yet we look at the more myopic set. I'm thinking about middle class wage growth, but maybe there's maybe you know enough about that to comment if there's um, a wholesale reimagining of that. If there are other areas where just a more thorough looking at the actual statistics would reveal actually things aren't quite so dire as we've been told. Well, um, the another area where I saw a lot of progress was in the number of children with health insurance. The share without health insurance has fallen by about two-thirds over the past generation. So that sounds like it has to do with poverty, but interestingly, poverty statistics don't capture health insurance. It just doesn't count it one way or the other because the Census Bureau doesn't think of it as income. Um, but the share of kids you know, who lack health insurance has gone way down. And again, it's made a profound difference in the in in these families' lives. Um, two of the three children I in the families that I talked about had had childhood operations. That one had a problem with his tongue and was speech delayed, and they thought he, they, the family thought he was autistic. He still wasn't speaking when he was three years old. They you know, got this Medicaid operation, and 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 boom, he's back on track. So. Imagine, imagine your kid needed that operation, and you didn't have the means to get him to a doctor. You couldn't afford it, and you know, there, or you'd gotten him to it, and you'd taken out a loan, and it left you unable to pay your rent. I mean, these are um, one thing that came through in these interviews was just how essential and intimate a benefit that health insurance was. So again, it doesn't show up in the poverty statistics per se, but it's really important. 
Jason DeParle is a reporter for the New York Times. He writes about poverty and immigration. The book that he mentioned, and he has written several, but that one is American Dream, Three Women, Ten Kids, and a Nation's Drive to End Welfare. Jason, thank you so much for your time and this reporting. Thanks, Mike. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. And now the spiel. I'm not a voter from Pennsylvania, but if I were today, I would feel misled, confused, maybe even lied to. Because for months, we or they were told, and I'll document the extent to which they were told, that Senate candidate John Fetterman was very much on the road to recovery. That he was experiencing struggles, that he was having auditory processing issues, that that there would be gaps and moments where he lacked clarity or couldn't find clarity. And this may be uncomfortable for an observer, but everyone was told a fair-minded viewer needed to know, we were all assured, that John Fetterman was getting better. In fact, he was well, mostly well. Here is Kara Swisher doing the assuring. I really feel like to to attack someone who's undergoing a major health issue who is fine. No different, Swisher said, than really anybody else. I was really quite impressed by how well he's doing. Um, And you you can judge yourself. Having done thousands of interviews, everybody has a problem with words, word salad, etc., Appearing on the Press Box podcast two weeks ago, New York Magazine writer Rebecca Traister marveled at how adept Fetterman was at the task of following along with written texts as they communicated. And I really marveled at the fact that it struck me that he was reading. That's actually, that's hard to do. I mean, I I kept thinking about, could I be reading this exchange on my end in the same amount of time that it takes me to just hear it and respond back? But the Fetterman we saw on the debate stage Tuesday night was not fine, was not the a few minor stumbles here and there candidate that we were told of. Though Rebecca Traister on MSNBC last night said, yes, he was that. That's exactly what he was. None of this should have been surprising. I think that this context and what you described as the insanely high stakes of this election, this single debate, clearly this was a candidate who was feeling stress and there was such intense scrutiny, often ableist scrutiny, on how he was going to communicate. And he just did a debate in front of, a, you know, a, the nation, a, you know, an audience of anyone who could listen. And it was so transparent. There is the charge of ableism and the assertion of transparency. This is what we were told to expect. Well, in that case, since all of debate-watching America was surprised, then I'd say the Fetterman campaign must have been engaged in political malpractice. In a series of interviews with Kara Swisher, with Dasha Burns of NBC, Fetterman was presented as doing pretty well. But on the debate stage, there was no way that voters were going to come to that conclusion on their own, with their own eyes, or channel his surrogates, or maybe pundits, 
not through their own eyes, but through the lens of ableism. In fact, NBC's Dasha Burns conducted the first sit-down interview with Fetterman, a short piece for the network where his answers were presented in sound bites, but she did include footage of him struggling for words. He seemed mostly okay, which is to say much, much better than during the debate. But Burns did disclose that without his adaptive screens, which he did have during the debate, that he was lost during interpersonal small talk before the interview. This revelation, which I would call a bit of necessary reporting, was assailed. Vox writer Ian Milheiser tweeted, Is it the position of NBC News that a senator with glasses cannot be trusted in office because they use assistive technology to accommodate their disability? Rebecca Traster had this to say. And the sort of exoticizing of that accommodation or the casting of even subtle suspicion around it, like, is, is a very... For me, a troubling choice journalistically, especially when what the call is journalistically is we want transparency. Transparency to me does not seem to have been an issue here at all. For a Pennsylvania voter to be concerned about the debate they saw is to be engaged in exoticizing, which is, of course, an unconscionable offense against the campaign whose greatest moment thus far was mocking his opponent's use of the word crudite. It is true that what we all saw in the debate, what we all heard, might not be indicative of much more than processing, audio processing, shouldn't implicate Fetterman's overall mental condition whatsoever. Stat News quoted Adina Dacey, a speech-language pathologist, the Associate Director of Healthcare Services at the American Speech and Language Hearing Association. She said, even if someone is having trouble retrieving words or names, a person's intelligence can still be intact. Absolutely it can. It can. Fetterman hasn't released a report from his neurologist. We've been unbelievably transparent, he argues, and journalists like Traster and Swisher amplify, but he's not released a full report. In June, he quoted or released a letter from his cardiologist, which said at the end, the prognosis I could give for John's heart is this. If he takes his medications, eats healthy, and exercises, he'll be fine. If he does what I told him, and I do believe that he is taking his recovery and his health very seriously at this time, he should be able to campaign and serve in the U.S. Senate without a problem. Remember, that all started with the prognosis for his heart. Twelve days ago, his physician, but not his neurologist, wrote, overall, Lieutenant Government Fetterman is well and shows strong commitment to maintaining good fitness and health practices. He has no work restrictions and can work full duty in public office. Those are the sum totals of the attestations by Fetterman's doctors. Of course, there is another doctor who looms large. Fetterman addressed him at a rally last night. How many one of you, perhaps any one of you, have had your own personal major health challenge? Anyone? Please, and, and please keep your hands up. Okay, what about maybe your, your parents? Okay, what about perhaps a grandparent? And God forbid, even, even a child. There's a lot more of us to rerouting against, like Dr. Eyes. And I hope that when you had those challenges among your, your loved ones, I hope you didn't have a doctor in your life making fun of it or ridiculing that. But unfortunately, I do. But if we don't do what we need to do, we're all going to have him for the next six years on that. The implications being, in a few months, I'll recover. Pennsylvania may not. 
if you vote for Oz. But voters, some voters in a toss-up state, have to be thinking, can we trust him on that? Is our concern legitimate? I believe it is. If Democrats believe it isn't, and continue to hammer home the point that to ask the question is to engage in acts of ignorance or ableism, then this Democrat will lose. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO, or as we call her, Coo, which is the first three letters in cool, of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, and thanks for listening. Do you think that the reaction to the stroke is... It has been over-exaggerated given your experience of a stroke? Yes. Yes, I'm perfectly fine. 